Well, it's my pleasure to invite someone who needs little introduction to us, uh, Reverend Ralph Neal, to come on up. Uh, Ralph's going to be leading us in looking at God's Word together this morning. Uh, Ralph retired from formal ministry a number of years ago, but as many of us know, has been very active in continuing to serve uh, our broader church community in many ways, in part with his gifts in preaching and teaching. And we are delighted that he and Bonnie have made their home at Courtright for a number of years now, and they've been instrumental in building community among our seniors, um, just as one of the ways that they have blessed us in their times here at Courtright. So Ralph, as I said, is going to be leading us in looking at God's Word this morning, and I'm just going to pray for him as we uh, prepare to hear from God's Word together. God, we thank you so much for Ralph and Bonnie. We thank you for the gift of their presence in our community and our congregation. God, we pray your blessing on them, and we thank you for the ways that they continue to love and serve you. God, we thank you for Ralph's um, contagious love for you and for his passion for your word. We pray that that would uh, do something to inspire and encourage our hearts this morning. God, would you use and anoint the words that he has to say to help us to know you better as we listen this morning. We thank you for him and pray your blessing on him in this time. In your name, amen. Well, this is probably new for you. Unfortunately, it isn't for me. I was just talking with John Fletcher earlier. I suspect that if I were to add up all the Sundays that I've had to preach sitting down, it, I've probably preached for at least half a year from a chair or a wheelchair. Um, you don't need to know the story, but it began 37 years ago, and it continues ever since. And uh, in a way, um, it's, there's, there's something really quite hilarious about uh, the fact that I'm sitting here with a walking boot, recovering from surgery, needing crutches, and my text this morning is about the, the, uh, the frailty and vulnerability of human life. <laughs> but then as I, as I thought about that, oh, I guess I can. Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> Now I'm in trouble. As I thought about that, it occurred to me that maybe it isn't quite so funny uh, or quite so hilarious because as I think about the Old Testament prophets, often, well, always God gave them a word, revelation. But sometimes he asked them to live it out, to pantomime it, if you will. I think, for example, of Ezekiel. Uh, having to bring a word to, uh, Israel, to, to God's people in captivity about what was happening back in Jerusalem. And he indicated that God was judging them and was going to destroy the city. And to make the point, he had to behave as if he was a city under siege. And uh, maybe it isn't quite so funny that uh, I'm in this condition this morning. And my text is speaking about that very thing. However, I'm getting ahead of myself. The scripture, which is for our consideration this morning, is from Isaiah chapter 40, the first 11 verses. And you will be very familiar with some of these words. Hear the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin is being paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And then from the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in this passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again sets a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the, uh, the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. To the end of the 13th verse of Hebrews chapter 4. Well, my verse, my text this morning, is the 8th verse of that passage in Isaiah chapter 40, which I mentioned 
uh, which I read just a moment ago. And it is a passage in which there's a contrast being drawn between this life, our life, with all of its vulnerability and frailty, and the eternal word of God, the revelation of God. On the one hand, the text says, well, let me read the whole text for you again. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So the first part of this text is about you and me, and particularly about me, as you see, an older man aging, getting closer and closer to 80, that four score, uh, that four score years that the scriptures say is maybe an outer limit. Uh, but as I say, I'm representing to you uh, the frailty of our lives. But this, this text isn't simply reminding us that we are limited in our, our time span, that we, we pass away quickly. We do. We don't know that when we're young and time seems to drag, but talk to anyone my age or older, and we will tell you with deep conviction that this life has gone very, very quickly and is over quickly. But I think the text is, is not only talking about our lifespan, be it long or short in relative terms, it's also talking about every human endeavor, all of human philosophies and ideas and standards by which we choose to live and try to build a society, it's all included in this text. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. We've always known, if you press any one of us, that life is not forever, that we're not immortal. Sometimes in the church we used to sing a hymn which started out, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. And the second verse said, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Well, we sang that occasionally, but... I think one of the reasons we didn't sing it all that often, back even when we were singing hymns as a regular course, is because of that second verse. It, it has an uncomfortable message. But it was there. And we knew what it was saying. We are limited, we're vulnerable, we're frail, and we're temporary. And it wasn't just within the Christian church that that was understood. There were occasionally poets who understood it as well. Our poets, who sometimes even wrote songs about this very thing. Paul Simon, for example, wrote a song. I think Art Garfunkel sang it for our generation, and we sang along with him. I was 21 years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long. Time hurries on. And the leaves that are green turn to brown, and they wither with the wind, and they crumble in your hand. Hello, 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 hello. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. That's all there is. There is no more. Well, we sang it along with Art Garfunkel when he sang it, and then we went about real life as we thought of it and didn't think any more of it. 
But the fact is, there is truth there. We have found all sorts of ways as a society, as a culture, to cover that up. It's interesting that we don't even have funerals anymore when people die. We now have celebrations of life. I'm not a hobby horse. I'm not going to ride that one. But the language change is significant. And when we have these celebrations of life, we do our best not to think about the big questions that are staring us in the face. Who am I? Why am I here? Is there a purpose for my life? Was I indeed created? Is there a God? And if there is, how do I get to know him? Do I need to know him? But we don't think about those things. We're busy amusing ourselves to death, as Neil Postman, in an often quoted title, I don't know if many people have read his book, but the title has grabbed our attention. Because it does speak of our generation. And our generation, Neil Postman wrote that book, I understand, about the impact of television on the life of Western culture. Nowadays, that was even before the internet and all this great stuff that we can lose ourselves in. All the technology and so on. We can cover up the fact, never think about the fact that we are just passing through. Life is short. Well, our text is reminding us of that. It begins there, but it doesn't want us to stay there. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Over against all that's temporary, all that's being swept away by time, all of the human philosophies and the standards of what we think is right and wrong that come and go constantly, Over against all of that, there is this unchanging word of God. He has spoken, and it's fixed, and it will be done. In the 119th Psalm, I'm sure you know that that Psalm is all about the word of God, his revelation to us in Scripture. And in one of the verses there, in in the 119th Psalm, it says, Thy word, O Lord, sorry, I'm quoting the King James, but that's what I learned as a kid, stayed with me. Thy word, O Lord, is fixed in the heavens. It's unalterable. What God has said is going to be done. What he he has declared stands firm, and nothing undermines it. Nothing takes away from it. As the Lord Jesus reminded us, the scripture cannot be broken. Nothing will be altered in the word of God. What he says will be done. What he promises will be kept What he requires is expected. What he promises will be always. Well, why is this spoken? If you know anything about the the book of the prophet Isaiah, you'll be aware that it divides up roughly into two big chunks. The first 35 chapters speak really about the coming judgment, which God's finally had enough with his people's constant rebellion idolatry, immorality, injustice. He sent his prophets over the centuries. They have not listened. So finally God is saying, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. There's an inter- a historical inter- interlude about from chapters 35 to 39, and then in verse chapter 40 to the end of the book, the whole theme seems to change. And now the, the, the word is, is directed to Israel after God's judgment has fallen. 
words that they will be able to draw on in consolation and comfort. And it begins, comfort ye. You heard, my, you heard those words, comfort, comfort my people. Uh, and if you've heard anything, if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, those words are probably etched in your mind by, by the, the glorious music of comfort ye, comfort ye my people. That's what, what the second section of Isaiah is about. Those sections are rough, they're not perfect. Because in the, in the first section, where judgment is the predominant theme, you've got glorious promises of the, of, the, of the coming Messiah. And the verses which we often read around the Advent wreath are from the first part of Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name will be called Mighty Counsel. You know all those. They're from the first part of Isaiah. And the second part of Isaiah... Yes, it's about comfort, but there's also that theme of judgment. However, the point I want to make here is that the section that we are looking at here, this, the, Isaiah 40, is the beginning of this, this great passage where God is trying to comfort his people after his judgment has been executed against them. They are now in Babylon. They're, there's a handful of them. They, they came out of Egypt hundreds of years earlier, over a million strong. And as you read the numbers that are finally carried away into, de- into deportation, into Babylon, it's tragic. They, they're numbered in the tens of thousands. That's all that's left. Everyone else is dead. And to make matters worse, Jerusalem is a ruin. The temple of God is a ruin. It's being burned to the ground. And God's people, no doubt, are thinking, well, that's it. We're done. Our life as a nation is over. And as for the messianic promises about a Messiah coming from us, forget that. What God is saying here is, no, no, no. That isn't the way it is at all. And the impact of this verse, maybe I can best sum it up with a verse from Jeremiah. You've often probably heard the second part of this, these two verses, and I'm going to quote for you. But the verses read this. They're from Jeremiah chapter 29. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, right? That's the length of the captivity in in Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's really what Isaiah 40 verse 8 is saying. The flower fades, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands. What God has promised, he's going to do. Well, that's the impact of it. That was the impact that those verses were, those words were intended to have when God first spoke them through Isaiah. But I think they're, they're designed to have impact on us, too. And uh, tell me, do they, uh, do they still teach Euclid in geometry? Any, no, you, the young guys, young people don't have a clue. Okay. All right. In geometry, as they used to teach it, there was the proposition that had to be proven. And when the proposition was proven, then there came corollaries. The, the working out the implications of the, of the proposition. Well, the proposition today is the word of God is unchanging and unchangeable. That's the proposition. 
and it proves itself. It's God himself who declares it. And if you have any doubts about whether that, that really works or whether you know, all of the other opinions we hear around us constantly are, are, have, have validity, look at the results of them. Look at the results. We've been living with the results of, of that sort of denial of, of, the, of the authority of the word of God. We've been living with those results for over 100 years. And are we better? Drive through the country and look at all the closed churches. And it's not that the population's been shrinking. In 100 years, the population has more than doubled in Canada. But not in the church. Why is that? It's because we listened to things we shouldn't have listened. We listened to the doubters. We listened to the people who were sure that God's word was outmoded and could be done away with. I remember uh, reading some words by the great English, he was a Baptist, but we'll forgive him, great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he, and I, I was struck one, reading one of his sermons years ago in which he says to his people, rest assured there is nothing new in theology except that which is false. We may want to think about that, and we may want to discuss some points of it, but Spurgeon spoke that at a time when there was a tsunami of unbelief sweeping over the church. It had arisen in Germany in the mid-19th century with, with uh, uh, intellectuals uh, in, in universities who, uh, with pre- tremendous credentials academically, began from the premise that the scriptures are not the word of, an, an infallible word from God. And so they began to work on it with the acids of unbelief and, and doubt and so on. And by the time they had finished, this, what I said was a, a tsunami of unbelief had really poured over the churches in the West. It had captured seminaries, it had captured pulpits, and people were being taught, and ostensibly by Christians who were not, but who claimed to be that you didn't need to believe in a virgin birth, that Jesus' miracles weren't really miracles, they were just the way, you know, old, you know, rubes of, of, of 2,000 years ago interpreted things. Dying on a cross for our sins, sin is sin, no, that's not our problem. Uh, blood atonement, no, 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 and so on. It went on and on and on. And the result of that is where we are today. We have a choice to make, in other words, and the choice is, do we choose to stand on the word of God or do we choose to stand on the shifting sands of human ideas? You remember how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount? You can probably sing it to me if you grew up in Sunday school, but I'll give you the words. The one who hears my words, says Jesus, and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell and the floods rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and the house on the rock stood firm because it was founded on rock. And then he said, and the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rains came and the floods arose and the winds blew and beat against that house and how did the children's version of that go when we sang it in the house and but the house on the sand went (laughs) flat i was seriously thinking of having you sing that with me but uh, we'll, we'll pass on that
But the point was, that Jesus was making was, there is a choice to be made. Do we build on God's word or do we build on the sand of human ideas? Do we build on what's unalterable and unchangeable or do we build on what is fading and withering even as we speak? And that's really the first corollary of the proposition, that God's word is unchanging. The first corollary is we can build our lives on it with confidence. Can't build our lives with confidence on all that we hear, on all that we read, on all that people are spouting continually around us. But we can build on the Word of God, the unchanging Word of God. When you read the Scriptures, they have a way of getting into your, into your life, your very life. And they do expose where you have been buying into the wrong stuff. That was the point of the Hebrews passage I read, right at, right at the end, that passage about the Word of God. It's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and it does that. But it judges them with God's perspective, and it leads us to God's perspective. When you, you listen to what God is saying, you're building your life and choose to build your life on it, you're building on solid rock. That's the first corollary. The, the second corollary to the proposition that God's word does not change is a really a word of warning. God's word does not change. And what he expects from us has not changed either. Now let that sink in for a minute. God's word has not changed, and what he expects from us has not changed either. You see, we're living in a time, I don't have to tell you this, you know it. We're living in a time when people have taken upon themselves to, ch to change the word of God. We've, we've taken the knots out, out of his word, and that's not K-N-O-T, it's N-O-T. What God has said is wrong, we have said is okay. Excuse me. Uh, and, uh, oh boy, here we go. This is me in technology. What, what we, we've, we've taken it upon ourselves to, to, to change that. We've changed the definition of marriage to suit ourselves. We, we've changed all sorts of things. I don't need to give you detail on that. You know the kind of things that, that are... The whole moral basis of, of life keeps changing. I was reading this week uh, of a, a very, some words by a very apt student of Western culture, and he was pointing out how the, uh, we, as, as we were sort of run to and fro as cha changing, uh, with changing morality. Uh, the thing which has been right and deemed good just last week, next week will be, churn, will be deemed bad. And, and those who espoused the good of last week will now be the bad guys, and so on. That's the way our life is going. God's word does not change. That's the point we're being given here this morning. And the scripture the, that God himself says, look, God is not mocked. What we sow, we reap. If we want to sow a life that is built contrary to what God has said, we will reap the consequences. If we sow according to what God has said is right and good and true, we will reap the consequences there. His expectations of us haven't changed. But then the really important thing, 
that, that I really want to leave you with is, is this. God's word hasn't changed, and neither has the gospel that he holds out to us. The gospel he holds out to us hasn't changed. And I want to make two quick points here. And the first is, is just this. Jesus, Jesus Christ, is still the only way to God. Jesus was very clear about this, wasn't he? I am the way. Notice the definite article. Not I am a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the early church went out preaching that message. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And our commission, the commission Jesus gave to the church, as Luke records it, was that we should go and preach repentance to all nations and faith in his name. Offering eternal life through faith in his name. That commission hasn't been changed. There is still just one way to God, and it's Jesus. And I know, I know, I can hear the chorus now that, well, that's awfully arrogant, isn't it, to say that Jesus is the only way? Well, and only way we'll think about it. Who is Jesus? We know that he's God come into the world. That he's lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. That he's died for us on a cross. And that he rose again from the dead. And when he said he came to to deliver us from our sins, his rising from the dead proves that he can. He's, He's a victor over sin and death and hell. He is still the only way to God. I suppose if some other religion had some kind of similar truth, that yes, here's God come and he's done something different, but if you follow that different, it'll get you to God. Maybe we could agree with the wise people who say that Jesus is not the only way. But God has only done this one thing once to ensure that we could be forgiven, have eternal life, have new hearts, and could live and, to, and die and go to be with him. He's only done it once. Jesus is still the only way to God. And I, I guess I want to emphasize that because you probably believe, as I believe, that Jesus is the only way to God, but I'm willing to bet You've been pulling in your, your head a little bit from the storm because it seems so strange to say to a world that doesn't want to hear it, Jesus is the only way to God. But he is. And we bear the most precious truth in the world that people desperately need. They don't know it, but they do. Jesus is still the only way to God. But then the second thing I want to say is Jesus is still the only way to God. He has come for us. He's died for us. He's made it possible for God to forgive us. 
He's made it possible for us to have new life, eternal life, that starts now when we trust him. He's still standing and saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on me, as the scripture has said. Believe on me. If you're new to us at Courtright, new to viewing us online, you need to know that this is what we believe here, that Jesus is the only way to God and that in God's infinite goodness, he's calling us to himself to receive a salvation which will make us right with God, enable us to live this life to the full and then enter what that glory he has waiting for us. We sometimes sing a song here at Courtright. What is my hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. If you're new to hearing this, you need to know that this is the only thing that will be a comfort to you in life and in death. Christ alone. Christ alone. If you haven't, if you haven't turned to him, if you haven't opened your life to him, then do so. And if you've got doubts about the truth of what I'm saying this morning, ask the Lord himself, ask Jesus himself to show you what's truth and what isn't with regard to his gospel. And he will. Because we'd love to have you in fellowship with us. Loving Jesus, praising Jesus, his forever. Amen. Father, thank you that in your mercy... You have not left us at the, at the whim of changing, ever-changing public opinion, philosophy, standards, but you've spoken a sure word, a true word, an unchangeable word. Lord, grant that we will never become foolish enough to doubt that word, to think that we can change it to suit ourselves. Thank you for this word, and thank you for the Savior it introduces us to. In his name, amen.